You're going to love this. Just love it. Pacifica Radio's KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, this is the best of the broadcast. I'm broadcast producer Desi Doyan. We're off today celebrating the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. We'll be back tomorrow. Coming up on today's show, Brad's recent interview with attorney Ricky Garza of the Texas Civil Rights Project in the Rio Grande Valley. He's helping Americans on the Texas-Mexico border trying to hold the line against Donald Trump's border wall land grab. And also, a mind-blowing 1958 TV show that you will not want to miss. But first, Brad's conversation with L.A. Times Pulitzer Prize-winning business columnist Michael Hiltzik about the case for California taking over its largest private utility company in the wake of catastrophic wildfires. So sit back and enjoy this best of the broadcast. Hey, you guys! Well done. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Pacific Gas and Electric said on Monday that it would seek bankruptcy protection as, quote, the only viable option as the giant California utility, the state's largest, faces billions of dollars in liability claims from two years of deadly wildfires, for which there is evidence their failure to properly maintain equipment sparked many of those fires that led to hundreds of thousands of scorched acres, tens of thousands of destroyed homes and other structures, and the deaths of more than 100 residents over just the past year or so. The New York Times reports the company's troubles pose a challenge to the state's elected officials and regulators who will ultimately have to decide whether part of the solution will be raising already high electricity rates on customers to help keep the utility company solvent. Experts said PG&E's predicament could be an early indicator of a wider economic toll from climate change, which is making wildfires more frequent and more destructive. At the same time, the company's financial straits could handicap the utility's ability to step up the kind of preventative measures it has been faulted for neglecting, like trimming trees and brush around power lines and transformers. For newly inaugurated Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom out here in California, he just took office last week, this bankruptcy disrupts an agenda that until now had focused on early childhood education, paid parental leave, and the expansion of the state's health care program. Newsom said Monday that everyone's immediate focus is rightfully on ensuring Californians have continuous, reliable, and safe electric and gas service. 
Fire investigators determined PG&E to be the cause of at least 17 of 21 major northern California fires in 2017. It is also suspected in some of the 2018 wildfires that have been described as the worst in state history, including one that killed at least 86 people and destroyed the town of Paradise late last year. California's utilities have been seeking favorable regulatory and legislative support to guard themselves against wildfire liability, but none more so than PG&E, the primary gas and electric supplier to the northern half of the state, serving about 16 million customers over some 70,000 square miles. After intense lobbying, the state's investor-owned utilities, which include Southern California Edison and San Diego Gas and Electric as well, they won a legislative shield from having to bear the cost of the 2017 fires. The law allows them to pass the cost of wildfires to their customers in the form of higher rates. And now they're seeking the same protection for last year's fires, Energy experts say PG&E's intention to file for bankruptcy is one of the first major financial casualties from climate change, but far from the last. Rising global temperatures driven by man-made greenhouse gas emissions are drying out western forests and leading to more intense and longer burning wildfires. But that's just one of the risks that utilities and other major entities like Fossil fuel producers facing investigations and lawsuits for their roles in climate change, not to mention insurance companies and state governments that may be needed to bail all of these people out. This is just uh, the first of what they are now finally beginning to confront. PG&E says it faces an estimated $30 billion in liability for damages from just the past two years of wildfires, a sum that would exceed its insurance and assets. The bankruptcy announcement this week by PG&E in a filing with federal regulators led the company's shares to plunge more than 50% on Monday. But even before that, some, including the LA Times' Michael Hiltzik, was suggesting it may be a great time for the state to simply take over the utility company in part to help avoid more public bailouts and trim excessive costs, such as for executive salaries and profits for the private uh, utility company. Writing at the L.A. Times last week, Hiltzik noted, falling to a price of about $17 a share on the New York Stock Exchange last Friday, PG&E's shares have lost two-thirds of their value since mid-October and three-quarters of their value since reaching a peak of nearly $70 a share back in 2017. PG&E's market value, which once exceeded $36 billion, is now less than $9 billion, Hiltzik wrote. And that was before last week's $17 uh, share price was cut in half with the bankruptcy announcement on Monday. PG&E's shares continue to tumble to about $6.5 today. If Hiltzik's numbers are right there, it would mean that the company's market value is now closer to around $3 or $4 billion. On the surface, Hiltzik writes, that suggests a solution to California's perennial problem of what to do about the chronically underperforming PG&E, since the shares are now trading for a few dimes on the dollar of what they used to be worth, Why shouldn't the state just buy the company? 
Good question. Why shouldn't they? Here to tell us why they shouldn't or why they should is the L.A. Times Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and business columnist Michael Hiltzik. Mr. Hiltzik, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Uh, thanks. It's good to be back with you. Ah. Uh, I should give you, uh, you know, we, uh, we, we actually have some firm figures. The market value of PG&E today when we're speaking is $3.6 billion. So it's come down by 90% from its mm-hmm. peak. So it's getting to the point where you and I could probably <laughs> get together and buy it out of our own uh, nest eggs. <laughs> yeah, really. Um, uh, and what would be the upside in, in, in doing that, other than it's a, a, a great bargain maybe at that price? Uh, what are the upsides for the state in buying them out? Well, you just named one, uh, which is that it would be a bargain. Uh, I think if you really analyze what PG&E owns, and its franchise, it's legitimately worth more than three and a half or three point six billion in book mm-hmm. value. Um, you know, it's got a lot of infrastructure out there. It's obviously got a lot of customers. Uh, it's got a lot of business. So, if the state were to buy it at three and a half or three point six billion, it could probably turn a profit by selling some of those pieces off. Um, you would have a situation where you would no longer be paying. Uh, many millions of dollars to the to PG&E's top executives, one of whom, Geisha Williams, just left with a, I think, two and a half, maybe three and a half million dollar severance. And she, after all, presided over a lot of the most recent problems that PG&E has. Mm-hmm. You would get rid of the shareholders, and, and although PG&E uh, suspended its dividend to the shareholders um, a, a year, maybe a little bit more than a year ago. Before that, it was cranking out about a billion dollars a year in dividends. That mm. was coming off the top. Uh, uh, a, a publicly owned, that is a state-owned utility, wouldn't have that expense, even if PG&E were to restore the dividend at some point. So uh, that would be cheaper. Uh, there are a lot of other technical advantages that have to do with um, getting PG&E out from under regulation by the federal government, yeah. uh, which which has some jurisdiction over some parts of the company, and then there's the, there's the basic advantage of putting in new management. Um, the management of PG&E has been absolutely atrocious for years. Uh, the company has a does not have a culture of safety. It does not have a culture of efficiency, and that all comes from the top. So. Uh, uh, you know, the company is in the process of sort of remaking its own management because a lot of its top executives are leaving. But but that process really could, I, I think, bear fruit better if it took place under the uh, uh, under the eyesight of of the state government. Now, I, I, uh, obviously, they would be able to get it for a song at this point. We'd be able to get rid of bad management and so forth, uh, get rid of the dividends to save money for taxpayers who are, or for ratepayers, I should say, uh, currently. But wouldn't then we, the people, be liable for that same $30 billion that PG&E uh, may be found liable for? Well, that would be true if indeed uh, the state bought the whole thing. Uh, there, there are some uh, smart uh, analysts out there and smart experts who say, you know, at these prices, it would make sense for the state to pick and choose, and it could choose the more the more profitable and promising parts of PG&E's business and leave the one with all the liabilities, and that's the distribution 
network. That's mm-hmm. uh, you know the, the wires uh, and cables that go through residential neighborhoods and go through the woods, uh, and it also includes uh, the, the responsibility for billing and things like that. That is something maybe that should be allowed to go bankrupt, uh, and then let the bankruptcy court decide what to do about those liabilities because that's where they all are. But there are also there are other assets that mm-hmm. PG&E owns, including the transmission network, and those are the big uh, cables that are on big towers mm-hmm. that get uh, electricity from uh, from one region to another within the state, or from generating plants to uh, to customers uh, or, or to uh, you know to transformers mm-hmm. in the state. There's hydroelectric power generating capacity that PG&E owns. That uh, could be very profitable, and that the state might want to have in its portfolio as it moves more toward renewable energy. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, so you know, when I said maybe the state should buy these utilities, and I included Edison in uh-huh. that uh, in that um, uh, idea, uh, I was being a little fanciful because if the state were to step in and buy it, it would not be able to buy PG&E for three point six billion the investors would see the state bidding and they would jack up the price mm. so but the idea that that we need a radical restructuring of ownership and management at PG&E and and possibly at Edison as well uh, is is for real. Well, I think it's for real also in this age of uh, climate change. It's not going to be just PG&E that's uh, facing problems like this. I want to get to that in a moment. But setting aside uh, just a financial question, you know, you, you referenced uh, the uh, long sort of checkered history of, of skirting responsibility, skimping on maintenance by this company. Uh, it was involved in the water contamination lawsuit made famous in the movie Aaron Brockovich. Uh, it had problems in the 2001 Enron debacle. Uh, PG&E was convicted, you mentioned this in your article uh, in 2017, of six felonies connected to the gas line explosion that took eight lives and uh, in uh, San Bruno, California, back in 2010. And last month, the Public Utilities Commission alleged that the company falsified gas pipeline records for years after that explosion. Now, Michael Hiltzik, if you or I were convicted of felonies that killed people and falsified records to cover it up, we would be out of business. Aren't, isn't, uh, can the case be made here that their criminal failures alone, repeated ones at this point, uh, should be more than enough to essentially take away their license to do business in the state at this point? Yes. You and I would be in jail, right. actually. Yeah. And, you, you know, unfortunately, you can't put a corporation in jail. Um, but you can but take yeah, away their their license to do business in the yeah, state. A- absolutely. Um, and in fact, one year ago, I wrote a column saying it's time to take the franchise away from PG&E and put it out for bid. Uh, let somebody else come in and show that they can operate all of these functions uh, much better, uh, more efficiently, cheaper, and without this, this, these constant... I mean, PG&E is like the Wells Fargo of the utility business. <laughs> yes. It can't seem to do anything right and scandals continue to crop up and uh, you know my case against PG&E goes way back even to the uh, the proposition that they tried to sneak uh, uh, across through the voters uh, many many years ago mm-hmm. to to basically eliminate competition from public power mm-hmm. uh, consortiums um, 
So PG&E has just been a bad actor. They have been absolutely atrocious operators. Uh, we haven't even mentioned how, you know, what Diablo Canyon, which they have not been able to manage properly and now are going to be shutting down. Di- Diablo Canyon, uh, for those not familiar, is the, I think the last operating uh, nuclear plant at this point in, uh, in the state. Uh, yes, it's the last operating nuclear plant, and that's because, by the way, Edison, which owns San Onofre, mm-hmm. screwed that up so badly that they had to shut San Onofre down years before its its license was basically expired. So, so you know, as I wrote, uh, you know, for everybody who says, well, government can't do anything right, uh, the comeback from that is two words. It's San Onofre. Yeah. Uh, a multi-billion dollar nuclear plant that was reduced to scrap by the incompetence of its corporate owner. Mm-hmm. So, uh, in fact, you know, government could do a lot right. It could do a lot more efficiently. It could strip a lot of costs uh, out of these enterprises. And uh, and it could always go out and hire uh, uh, private contractors to run the parts of the companies that need to be run. Yeah, and, you know, it is the taxpayers who are ultimately on the hook when these uh, nuclear plants shut down and the companies go away, but will be paying for them for years in one form or another. Now, I, I of course, I appreciate that millions need the energy that these companies supply so they you know they can't simply be shut down but at some point i'm wondering you know when we don't say enough is enough simply take this over by the state what is the impediment to doing that in california there actually is a significant legal impediment uh, at the moment and that is that the state constitution forbids the state from owning uh, stock in a corporation but as we know, the state constitution can be changed. Mm-hmm. But we do, we we really do need to have a debate, and a debate in the near term mm-hmm. about who should own these utilities and how, and how they should be operated. PG&E is almost certainly going to file for bankruptcy, so it's now going to be under the jurisdiction of a federal bankruptcy court, and that gives the legislature and the Public Utilities Commission, some opportunity to make their voices heard to the bankruptcy court about what they want that judge to do. And uh, the PUC can say, look, we want to see PG&E operated this way and that way, Mm -hmm. and unless a new buyer comes into bankruptcy court with the commitments we want, we're not going to give that new buyer a license. So... So the bankruptcy court needs to listen to us about what we want out of PG&E. And, and I think that, that in fact, is, is a significant advantage. And, uh, yeah, and it is something that we, we do need to start uh, debating and talking about. There are some larger related issues here, uh, and including some, some downsides. The New York Times reports that the uh, bankruptcy would allow PG&E to renegotiate its contract with its electricity suppliers, which could hurt solar and wind farms that might struggle to make money and repay debts if, in fact, they are forced to accept lower prices from PG&E. Is that something that uh, might be avoided well, I, with yeah, the public takeover? I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not sure I agree with that. Uh-huh. Uh, look, the, the price of energy and the price of, uh, of wind and solar is really governed by, at this point, the price of natural gas. Mm-hmm. And that's not in the bankruptcy court's jurisdiction. So... Frankly, I think the Times was stretching to find 
a downside to bankruptcy, and I'm not sure they got that one right. Climate scientists, lastly, have warned that uh, these adverse weather events, climate events, are, are going to get even worse in California and elsewhere, uh, you know, like the uh, drought and high winds, floods, etc., that are going to impact entire sectors like the utility industry and the insurance industry and so forth. Uh, w- what do you see as the uh, business columnist at the L.A. Times uh, as the risks to businesses overall? Uh, from the shift in uh, extreme weather events these days, and how much planning do you see in the business sector for the growing effects of climate change, Michael? Look, we're going to have these risks no matter what. We're going to have these risks whether I own PG&E or you do or the state of California or the shareholders do. Uh, These are risks that we have to have a, a broader discussion about how to manage them, and there are risks and there are opportunities in climate change uh, together. Uh, Climate change is going to make wind and solar, I think, more competitive uh, in the future. Um, The uh, technology of renewable energy generation is going to be a profitable business uh, for somebody. The costs of climate change, we're going to see them on the coasts. We're going to see them in the deserts, we're going to see them in the Central Valley because they're going to affect what farmers grow and how and how much they get for their crops. So all of this is is for real. Um, I, I think California has probably done more than most other states in starting to come to grips with it because at least we're, we've been developing information about what those impacts might be, but, but nobody has done enough planning uh, up, up to this point, and that includes the utilities, that includes the legislature, that includes all the agencies uh, that we have mm-hmm. that, that are beginning to come to grips with it, but it's a big, complicated uh, uh, issue, and we're not getting any help right now from the federal government, so we're on our own. We are, and I hope that uh, newly inaugurated uh, Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom is up to the task. He's got a lot on his uh, on his plate right now. In the meantime, Michael Hiltzik and I are going to be uh, uh, bringing our pennies together as the stock continues to fall, and uh, it may be the Hiltzik Friedman Energy Company uh, by the time we're done. Hey, Michael, I appreciate you joining us uh, today, and uh, this is a really interesting topic. Uh, that I hope we will continue to discuss in the future, though I hope that uh, PG&E stops giving us reasons to. Uh, Michael Hiltzik, you can find his work uh, at latimes.com and, of course, on the Twitters at HiltzikM. Thanks for joining us, Michael. Thanks for having me. You bet. I just wanted to jump in really quick. I mean, Jump. Okay. Well, the part where you described how the utility industry lobbied California heavily to get this this law in place to shield them. To protect from, them, yeah. Yeah, to protect them and raise rates on customers. This is happening all over the country. I mean, while you're not looking, your utility industry is lobbying your state lawmakers for exactly this kind of thing so they can continue to pay their CEOs millions of dollars yeah. and not use that money from ratepayers to invest in resilience for these climate change impacts. This is coming to every state. Yeah, uh, it's going to profits instead of to uh, shoring up the business, and and uh, you know, and and it falls to the ratepayers, the taxpayers. Yeah, you so, pay for higher rates for all of this. Yeah, so uh, let this uh, be a wake up call, as the electric company used to say. 
Coming up next, Ricky Garza of the Texas Civil Rights Project in the Rio Grande Valley. And after that, clips from a chillingly prescient 60-year-old TV show that you won't want to miss. I'm Bradcast producer Desi Doyen, and this is the best of the Bradcast. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance, now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. You're listening to the best of the broadcast. This land is your land, and this land is my land, from the California to the New York Island, from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters. This land was made for you and me. That's what you'd think. Welcome back to the broadcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. As President Donald Trump traveled to the border in Texas on Thursday to make the case for his $5.7 billion border wall, landowner Eloisa Cavazos says she knows firsthand how the project will play out if the White House gets its way. The federal government has already started surveying land along the border in Texas and announced plans to start construction next month. Rather than surrender their land, some property owners are digging in, vowing to reject buyout offers and preparing to fight the administration in court. Cavazzo says you could give me a trillion dollars and I wouldn't take it. The river separates the U.S. and Mexico in Texas. Her property sits along that river, the Rio Grande. She says it's not about money. To us, this is heaven. The Cavazos family's roughly 64 acres were purchased by their grandmother 60 years ago. They rent some of the property to tenants who have built small houses or brought in trailers. They charge some as little as $1,000 a year. They live off the earnings from the land, and they worry that a fence would deter renters and turn their property into a no-man's land. On the rest of the property are plywood barns, enclosures for cattle and goats, and a wooden deck that extends into the river which flows serenely east toward the Gulf of Mexico. Eloise's brother Fred can sit in his wheelchair and fish off the wooden deck that extends into the river. In March of last year, Congress funded 33 miles of walls and fencing in Texas. The government has laid out plans that would cut across private land in the Rio Grande Valley. Private land. Those in the way include landowners who have lived in the valley for generations, as well as environmental groups and a 19th century chapel. The AP reports that the opposition will intensify if Democrats accede to the, Dem to the Trump administration's demand to build more than 215 new miles of wall, including 104 miles in the Rio Grande Valley. Nada Alvarez wants nothing to do with any such border wall, but her acre of land in Rio Grande City, Texas, where she lives in a brown house along the dividing line between the U.S. and uh, between the U.S. and Mexico, has become of great interest to the U.S. government, according to The Washington Post. She, along with dozens of other landowners in the Rio Grande Valley, received surprise letters from the federal government in recent months 
Requests from officials who are seeking access to their properties right now for surveys, soil tests, equipment storage, and other action. It is, according to lawyers and experts, the first step in the government trying to seize private property using the power of eminent domain to build hundreds of miles of wall, some of which passes through land, like Alvarez's. She's a 47-year-old high school teacher, and she refuses to sign over access to her property for the surveys. Uh, her property was handed down from her grandfather. She says, I'm against the wall because I'm going to get evicted by it. The letters are the first of a two-step process that the government uses in cases of eminent domain. It first requests surveys of the land, uh, which landowners often agree to. And then if the land is suitable for the government's intended use, it moves to take the land, either by convincing the owners to sell or turn to the uh, courts to force the sale. The government sued the local Roman Catholic diocese last year to gain access for its surveyors at the site of La Lomita Chapel, a small 150-year-old church where mass, weddings, and funerals are held, and a Palm Sunday procession takes place each year, drawing some 2,000 people. The church, which opened in 1865, was an important site for missionaries who traveled the Rio Grande Valley by horseback. It remains an epicenter of the Rio Grande Valley's Catholic community. It's a short distance from the Rio Grande River. It falls directly into the area where Customs and Border Protection want to build an enforcement zone, a 150-feet area in front of any new wall construction for access roads and cameras and lighting, etc. The diocese says it opposes a border wall because the barrier violates Catholic teachings and the church's responsibility to protect migrants. Taking the land to build a wall, said Mary McCord, a visiting professor at Georgetown Law and, for, and a former Justice Department official now working on the Catholic diocese case, substantially burdens the exercise of religion, and the government has not articulated a compelling reason it needs to build a wall there. A person cannot be compelled, McCord said, to participate in something that violates their firmly held religious beliefs. That's something the Trump administration and Republicans have pretended to care about in recent years, at least when it meant gutting sections of President Obama's Affordable Care Act. But the letters being sent to private property owners are the first of this two-step process. And the Texas Civil Rights Project is now trying to let people know that they are not required to respond to these letters. They are not required to sign over access to their land. They're going door to door in some neighbors, uh, neighborhoods, letting people know their rights. And they are running digital ads and spots on local radio. If you don't have a lawyer, you're just going to get railroaded, said Efren Olivares of the Texas Civil Rights Project in the Washington Post story. We're trying to make sure this isn't going to happen. Legal experts say Trump likely cannot even waive eminent domain, which requires the government to demonstrate a public use for the land, even if he declares a national emergency, as he has threatened to do. In other words, even if he declares a national emergency and wins the inevitable court cases over whether he's allowed to use such a declaration to divert money from the uh, from U.S. military defense spending in order to build his wall, even then the government would still be facing dozens, if not hundreds, of challenges from landowners whose property would be confiscated for use on Trump's wall project. Without that national 
emergency declaration, the government is already facing challenges from many landowners for the walling and fencing that has already been approved by Congress and the president. In other words, it could be argued that what Donald Trump describes as a crisis at the border is actually already a legal crisis for many longtime American citizens living along the border who did not ask for this fight. Joining us now for more on this is Ricky Garza, staff attorney in the Rio Grande Valley for the Texas Civil Rights Project, a nonprofit legal organization and one of the most influential civil rights organizations in the state. Mr. Garza, thank you for joining us on the broadcast. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. Uh, how many uh, people or property owners are we talking about in the Rio Grande Valley who, here who are currently affected by these uh, by these letters, by this, uh, these threats from the government, even before uh, uh, Trump somehow muscles through his $5 billion for a wall? So what we know right now is that hundreds of um, letters have already gone out to landowners across the Rio Grande Valley. And really, just from that introductory description that you just gave, um, the... The breadth of landowners that, that live and, 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 and work and recreate and, and have grown up in, in the Rio Grande Valley is really just um, shown by the, um, the, the diversity of people who own property right, right on the river. Like you mentioned, we have a historic Catholic church that's over 150 years old. You have agricultural landowners, and you have people who are just homesteaders, small, low-income families who live along the border and make their home in, in the neighborhoods that... Um, that really are connected to to Mexico and to the United States and really the the Rio Grande Valley is a diverse region of over a million people that lives and dies by the water that comes from the river we're a binational bicultural community and um, the people who who live here I think understand the realities that you can't just build a wall along the international border and expect everything to um, right next to it to be unaffected you, the, the actual boundary between the United States and Mexico lies within the river itself. And, of course, there's no proposal to build anything um, inside the, the, the river itself and in the water. So um, what the government has resorted to is um, using its eminent domain power given to it by the Constitution to, um, to take people's land. And it may not be the case in the rest of the Southwest, but here in Texas, the majority of um, land uh, along the border is privately held. So... Um, in order to to build any wall, they would have to go through private landowners first, and that's exactly what we're seeing with our clients. And I I think because a lot of people I, I don't th think understand this, we're talking about uh, where the Rio Grande uh, cuts across uh, the border. The border runs, as you said, uh, sort of right through the middle of the river. So there's basically two choices if you want to build a wall. You either have to build it on the Mexican side, which they're probably not going to want to, uh, <laughs> not going to be in favor of, or you build it on the American side, which means you're cutting off all of these people. You're cutting off their yeah. access from the river, correct? From the river itself. Yes, that, that's, that's right. And we have one client who um, tells us that she learned to fish and to swim and grew up going to to their property along the river and we're able to just swim in it freely and i think the the contrary to any um assertion of a crisis by the president the only crisis that exists now is um is artificially created by this administration and to be sure this is not the first administration we've seen tried to seize um land along the border right now there is border fencing that has already been been built um along the river some of it has already 
um, there is some money that's already been appropriated and, and, and lands are sought to be to be seized um, right now. So mm-hmm. regardless of what happens with the shutdown fight and with Trump's demands, um, there is already over a billion dollars appropriated um, for more border wall construction than we already have now. And that is, is something that already the, the local community knows is, is not going to... Um, to make any to make any real difference or solve any to solve any perceived problem, and yet the uh, the, the government continues its uh, path of destruction in, in, in my home. The uh, you mentioned uh, Trump's claim that there is a crisis here. Is there any sense in the Rio Grande Valley at all that such a crisis actually does exist? After all, these are people Trump is telling us that there are violent people, crimes, drugs, everything else coming across the border. You would think that the people who actually live on the border would be the first ones affected by that. Is there any sense at all that there is actually a crisis or uh, I guess, and or is there something that the, the, uh, the folks in the Rio Grande might want to improve uh, border security, but not a wall? You know, I grew up in the Rio Grande Valley. I was I was born and raised in McAllen, and the only time I heard any talk about a crisis along the border was when I turned on cable news and CNN <laughs> and Fox. And um, you see the uh, the artificially created crisis that that comes from Washington every few years. Unfortunately. Um, for border residents, this is just the latest example of Washington coming down and um, looking at the border and saying that we need um, something that the local community doesn't want. Polling consistently shows that an overwhelming majority of people who actually live and work on the border oppose um, a border wall and, and, and oppose militarization of our communities. And what what we're seeing on, on the ground is that people are having their lives interrupted by this uh, in, intrusion onto the, the, into the borderlands um, by, by the federal government and um, by border militarization. We've seen um, a decrease in apprehensions along the border, yet an increase in border patrol hiring and staffing and construction of things like the border wall and um, erection of things like uh, security towers along the areas close to the river and aerostat blimps that were formerly used in Iraq, um, now deployed in um, some neighborhoods in the Rio Grande Valley to um, surveil the, the border and um, in, implicitly all of us. So I think that, you know, the, the only crisis is, 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 is coming from the, uh, the administration's response itself, and it's just a, uh, another sad example of um, the federal government failing to understand the realities of, of life on the border and um, what it's really like for, for us just trying to live our lives um, in peace. The uh, the Washington Post notes that your group is going door to door to reach out to property owners to let them know about their mm-hmm. rights. What sort of uh, what sort of reception are you getting from those folks? Do uh, are people who are receiving these letters do they understand that there is legal help out there to challenge them? Yeah, so I think it's really going to vary based on where where you go, right? Because if you look at um, the the delay of the Rio Grande Valley. Um, there's Cameron County, Hidalgo County, and Star County. Those are the three counties, the southernmost counties of the state of Texas, um, that, that border the Rio Grande. And in places like Cameron County and Hidalgo County, that's where the larger cities of McCown and Brownsville are located, a little more urbanized, um, uh, and, and not most of the, uh, the cities, with the exception of Brownsville, um, are not actually touching the, uh, the international boundary itself. McCown, for example, is offset by about 10 miles or so. So um, landowners along the actual river tend to be more 
um, agricultural owners. Mm -hmm. um, the federal government might own some land outright itself, and the name of something like the, the Fish and Wildlife Service um, or a, uh, a uh, National Wildlife Refuge, like we saw with the Santa Ana National Wildlife Refuge, which was actually exempted by um, legislation and the rare example of mm. um, a, a protection given to, uh, given to an ecological resource. But if you go further um, west to the, the more rural and um, even lower income Star County, you see communities like Roma and Rio Grande City and um, places that are smaller towns, but their central town sites and their concentration of populations are actually very close to the river itself. So there are some um, subdivisions and neighborhoods where uh, a, an entire street's backyards are the river itself. Mm. And um, I, I had the opportunity to go out to, uh, to Roma last summer um, and, and go door-to-door -door in, that, in that community. And I think the reception was, was generally positive, but the, the takeaway is that so many folks just don't know their rights just because the, the, the power of the federal government um, has in, a, in in eminent domain is um, wide-reaching, Does that doesn't mean that there aren't consequent due process rights for landowners as well. Um, we, we have it in our basic law that um, the government has the right to take private property for public use, but landowners are owed um, their due process as well and are owed um, just compensation. And what we're seeing in, in reality is that folks are getting a a letter from the Department of Justice um, asking them to voluntarily turn over their land for surveying purposes and then ultimately turn over their land for condemnation. Um, and if they don't answer that letter, which they are under no obligation to, to do, they'll get a home visit from somebody from either the Department of Justice, the uh, Army Corps of Engineers, and uh, those folks are often accompanied by a Border Patrol agent in a Border Patrol vehicle. That's what we've been told by, by our clients uh, here in the valley, and if you're not somebody extremely familiar with the with your rights, I would be intimidated too. If a yeah. border patrol van came up to my came up to my apartment and asked me um, to sign something, so yeah. imagine folks that may not may not speak English, may not understand um, the the full extent of their rights, regardless of something like immigration status. Um, that you know, it could be intimidating. So that's. Where we come in to uh, to to advise folks of their of their rights and to ensure them that the government does have great power in eminent domain, but that doesn't mean that landowners can't fight back. And what what are their rights in this case? As I understand it, once the government actually surveys a property and determines that the land fits their need, the it, it's then up to the government, isn't it? Isn't the uh, the only question how much the landowners will actually get for their property? The government will take it no matter what, and then it's uh, a fight in court about how much money they get. In other words, is there any way to actually stop the government if they decide they want a particular piece of land? So it, it's, it, is, it is an interesting question, but what we've seen in, in the Valley is that there even, you, you would think that there are, there are very few defenses, in it, and in some sense that, that is the case, but we've seen things where um, the actual ownership of, of land is not fully asserted by the government. So in essence, they are um, asking for, for land to be turned over um, by one person or by a small group of people, and when you actually go back to the land records, those people may not fully own the land. And um, the government is under an obligation to fully advise all um, people with an interest in, in the land 
um, in, in order to actually take that land. So mm-hmm. um, to, to take the land, you have to first know who owns it. And in places uh, where there are more um, homeowners like Star County, you have a, a, a land um, record system that dates back to the Spanish land grants from the, uh, from the 18th century. So I know the, uh, the Army Corps of Engineers has had trouble in some cases even asserting who owns land in the first place. And we would argue that it is, um, it is legally inadequate to try to take a piece of land from somebody who may not even own it in the, um, in the sense that the government is, uh, is arguing. Have uh, has the community rallied around? Uh, I was I was struck by this story about the La Lomita Chapel, the 150 yeah. year old mm-hmm. uh, chapel, uh, and and looking at the the layout of the land there. I mean, it seems to me that they would have to basically cut this historic site off entirely from the river, if not desecrate the the chapel itself in some fashion. Is that a rallying point for the uh, for the community there, or is, or is that just an interesting uh, historic tidbit that uh, some of the in the media have noticed? Yeah, no, I, I really think it is a rallying point for the entire Rio Grande Valley, and it's hard to underestimate the extent of how much something like La Lomita um, is embedded in the fabric of the of the valley's culture. I've been out to to La Lomita, and it is one of the the oldest religious structures still standing in in the entire region um, which is pretty uh, predominantly and uh, uh, disproportionately Catholic and it just highlights the fact that if a wall is going to be built it can't actually be built on the banks of the river itself so then there's this entire no-man's land that's created um, ensnaring places like like La Lomita and La Lomita was one of the original Catholic missions of the Rio Grande Valley. Right next to McAllen, directly to the west, is um, the city of Mission, Texas. That city is about half the size of McAllen. It forms part of the greater um, McAllen metro. And the city of Mission was named for La Lomita Chapel. And um, the city seal features the image of the church um, on expressways in the Rio Grande Valley, um, driving from town to town. I've seen the symbol of La Lomita emblazoned on parts of the, uh, the, the highway that, that run through Mission, Texas. And I think it's, it's, a part of the, it's a part of the community and a part of the religious identity that it really um, can, cannot be underestimated. Well, don't worry. They'll just, uh, we'll just put some uh, beautiful steel slats on the, uh, on the <laughs> seal uh, right. for the city of Mission. Ricky Garza, um, before I let you go here, uh, who is funding this effort on behalf of uh, these landowners? This is a big project you've got, and it is set to get a whole lot bigger if, uh, if Trump gets his $5 billion. Uh, are you guys, the, uh, the, the Texas uh, Civil Rights Project, uh, picking up the cost for, uh, for homeowners in this battle? So we're working with, um, with uh, we're planning to work with pro bono partners, and um, the Texas Civil Rights Project is supported by a, a mix of um, grants and individual donations. We're always looking for um, for more support uh, at our website, TexasCivilRightsProject.org. But we um, are enlisting the help of um, of anyone we of anyone we can, and pro bono partners and um, other legal organizations to uh, to to take this fight to to the government because we. Um, know that landowners do have do have rights and do have their due process owed under the Constitution, and we um, don't want to see the, the the government take take our land in in the sacred spaces of the Rio Grande Valley without without a fight. So we're going to 
be here uh, as, as long as we have to doing just that. Ricky Garza, I'm uh, very happy you guys are there. I have been happy, uh, as I know the Texas Civil Rights Project has fought for voting rights down there in Texas. You guys were sort of first on the scene when uh, the, the family separation crisis yes. under mm-hmm. Donald Trump uh, came about. Uh, so thank you mm-hmm. all for the work that you're doing there. Uh, Ricky Garza is staff attorney uh, in the Rio Grande Valley for Texas Civil Rights Project, which, as he says, you can find and support, donate to at TexasCivilRightsProject.org. Ricky Garza, greatly appreciate you joining us today on the broadcast. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. Thank Keep you. up the good work. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, uh, let's take a quick break here and come back with... Um, This is just kind of amazing, an amazing television show from 1958 that uh, predicted our situation in a way that is just kind of mind-blowing. Is that the way to put it, Des? Yeah, I would say it went, yeah, definitely, mind-blowing. All right, take a quick break and come back uh, to blow your mind right here on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter, and we do it all independently without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. You're listening to the best of the broadcast. Yeah, sort of. I don't know if this is a back to the back to the future, forward to the past. I don't know. Welcome back to the broadcast, Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. But this is really amazing. In 1958, CBS aired an episode of a show called Trackdown, in which a con man played by Lawrence Dobkin, attempted to sell a town a uh, quote-unquote wall in order to protect them from the, what was a fake threat of a meteor shower. That was going to kill everybody at midnight. Now, how was uh, how would a wall protect you against uh, meteors? Well, eventually we find out that that wall is actually umbrellas, but... Uh, And, of course, they wouldn't protect you from meteors either. It was all a con. But the show's main character, Robert Culp, uh, or played by Robert Culp, ultimately exposes this man as a fraud who was plotting with the town sheriff to sell the wall and enrich himself and then get out of town. It's like an episode of The Twilight Zone and, frankly, you can't get any weirder or more prescient as... um, a blogger over Daily Coast named Azure uh, described. But uh, this is real. Snopes.com confirmed the authenticity of this. This was a, a, a 30 minute show, about 22 minutes without commercials, but uh, it's uh, condensed down here to about four minutes. Um, when it was originally posted to YouTube, apparently back in November of 2016. And yes, I swear to God, this is real, and it is amazing, not just that there's a con man trying to sell a town on a wall, but the character of the con man selling the wall to this town to protect them is actually named, well, you'll see. 
I bring you a message. A message few of you will be able to believe. A message of great importance. A message I alone was able to read in the fires of the universe. But be not afraid, my friends. I also bring you the means with which to save yourselves. Save us from what? From the end of the world, friend. Which I don't expect you to believe. But the rest of you, those who want to be alive tomorrow morning, I will tell you tonight. Remember that. Bring your friends here. I'll tell you tonight so that you will be able to prepare. What are you selling, Mr. Snake Oil? The world will come to a flaming end at midnight tonight. Without my help and knowledge, every one of you will be dead. Planning to remain in town for long? Well, I understand I have until midnight. Uh, your name is Trump? All right, Sheriff. How long are you going to put up with this? What do you mean? How long are you going to let this con man walk around town? Be careful, son. I can sue you. How about it, Sheriff? When are you going to put the lid on? What for? Well, stealing is stealing, whether you do it with a gun or a mouthful of mealy words. I don't intend to sit here and be insulted, Sheriff. If your people don't want my help, I can go elsewhere. Wait a minute, Mr. Trump. You don't talk for the rest of us. <laughs> Since the sheriff wouldn't stop Trump, Hobie had to find somebody who would. Sheriff Chet Farrow was the gun law and helper, and Judge Clement was the book law. Do you hear about Trump? Yes, sir. What are you going to do about him? What do you want me to do? Stop him. From what? From taking the town. Can you prove that that's what he has in mind? Well, it's obvious. But can you prove it? In order to arrest him, the sheriff has to have a charge. And Trump hasn't given him a thing to go on. Well, there's got to be some way to stop him. Well, if there is, I don't know it. Uh, it's a funny thing. Sir? When we were kids, we were all afraid of the dark. And we grew up, and we weren't afraid anymore, but it's funny how a big lie can make us all kids again. Hobie had checked the town. The people were ready to believe. Like sheep, they ran toward the slaughterhouse. And waiting for them was the high priest of fraud. I am the only one. Just me. I can build a wall around your homes that nothing will penetrate. What do we do? How do we save ourselves? You ask, how do you build that wall? You ask, and I'm here to tell you. You're a liar, Trump. There's not going to be any rain of fire. Can you deny the meteorites will come? Can you deny the comet? Well, it's not going to happen the way you say it is. Aren't you going to stay for the fireworks? Huh? Looks like you're going to go before everything's done. I've done all I can for Talpa. Figure it's time for me to be moving on. Well, I think you ought to wait. Where you and I disagree. You're under arrest, Trump. <laughs> what charge? Well, you write it any way you like. Grand theft, fraud, I think a jury will find it stealing. That's for real. That really happened. That really happened. Uh, that was uh, the uh, 1958 episode of Trackdown on CBS titled The End of the World with Lawrence Dobkin playing the role of Walter Trump selling a town on a wall as a con. 
that seems impossible. And yet, it's real. Well, I was going to say, according to Snopes, it's real. But uh, yeah, it is it is real because you can actually look at the video of it. A representative <laughs> for MeTV, according to Snopes, which is a Chicago network that airs reruns of Trackdown, confirmed that the episode was real. Oh, yeah. And that's actually Robert Culp. I can confirm that, too. I, I mean, it seems impossible. Uh, the they you know waiting for the high priest of fraud. Trump saying, "I am the only one. Trust me, I can build a wall around your home that nothing will penetrate." It's just kind of amazing. Well, and that's where we are. It's that's 2019, are. and that's where we are. And there was one part of the dialogue uh, that I think a judge warns the ranger. I live here. I know these people pretty well. And right now there's nothing in the world that can change their minds about Trump. And anybody who tries to could end up getting hurt. They're not going to listen. I, I, uh, anyway, I, I just I looked at this for I don't know how long last night trying to figure out if this was fake or not. And but it's not. It, it is not. Amazing. Anyway, hope you enjoy that. Thanks, Brad, and thanks to our guests today, Michael Hiltzik of the L.A. Times and Ricky Garza of the Texas Civil Rights Project. And, of course, thanks to you for spending part of your day with us. You can download every episode of the Bradcast for free at bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us worldwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Brad Blog, And tell us what you think at bradcast at bradblog.com. And, as ever, our thanks to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves. We'll be back tomorrow with an all-new edition of the Bradcast. Until then, I'm Bradcast producer Desi Doyen. Good luck, world. (laughs) 